0: You are listening to Gone But Never Forgotten. Our topics can include, but are not limited to, murder, sexual assault, graphic and gruesome details, and more. These topics are adult in nature and are not meant for everyone. Listener discretion is advised. Obviously, in cases where someone goes missing for a long time, there seem to be two ways that the story can go in the vast majority. Either the person that disappeared had decided that they would move on to a new place and an entirely new life and wipe the slate clean, or the worst is eventually confirmed, and those searching find out that their loved one has passed away in one form or fashion. However, here on this podcast, I always try to spread hope and the belief that it doesn't always have to be that way. In this week's episode, we are going to look at the disappearance of not one, but three people who were missing for quite some time. And although they went through hell, eventually, even after most hope was lost, they were returned to the people who were searching for answers. Hello, my name is Lance, and welcome to episode 70 of Gone But Never Forgotten. The Horrible Tale of Ariel Castro and the Kidnappings of Michelle Knight, Amanda Berry, and Gina DeJesus. On May 6th of 2013, a woman who had been missing for just over 10 years would make a miraculous escape from the place that she and two other missing women were being held captive. Their story is nothing short of horrendous and miraculous all at the same time. If you are familiar with this case, you know that perhaps there is no other story that quite encapsulates the pure joy of finding a lost loved one with the pure horror of everything that happened for the decade that these women were held captive. Let's start at the very beginning of their story. Michelle Knight was a young woman who had never had a happy or appealing life. She grew up in Cleveland, Ohio, but her home life was a complete disaster, and she hated everything to do with it. Her life was traumatic, and her family was certainly not treated with any regard by her parents. She said that growing up, the family did not even have a couch to sit on or a stove to cook in. In fact, she would cook meals for herself and her siblings on a space heater she notes that it would take four hours just to cook a hot dog. Michelle was thrust into parenthood at a very early age simply because nobody else was fulfilling that role for her nor for her siblings. On top of all that, Michelle also says that she was emotionally and sexually abused at home as well. Because of that, at the age of 14, Michelle decided that she was safer on the streets than she was living within that home, and she ran away. Michelle would find calmness living under a bridge where the vibrations from the vehicles kept her more calm than she had ever been in that childhood home. Even though she never knew where she would sleep or eat next, Michelle says that she knew that she was better off. One of the places that she took solace was at a local Baptist church. She loved the music, and they also provided her at times with food and a place to bathe. Unfortunately, a congregant at that church would recognize her, report back to her father, and she was forced to go back to school, where she would start dating a boy, become pregnant, and give birth to a son, Joey, at the age of 18. The birth of Joey drove her to try to be better, she says. She wanted to be a better parent than she had ever known, and she wanted to be the best mom possible for Joey. She says, though, that that was obviously hard because she did not have much money. She was forced to continue to live at home. In the spring of 2002, her mom's boyfriend got drunk and abused Joey physically. Fracturing Joey's knee and social services would put Joey into foster care. On August 23rd of 2002, Michelle would get lost on her way to a case management meeting that was going to be an attempt to get custody back of her son. She says that she got lost on the way to that meeting and she stopped to get directions at a store. In a panic, she also tried to make contact by phone to let someone know that she was lost and not going to make it on time. But... What happened next, she believed at the time, may have been a guardian angel of sorts, but instead turned out to be very much the opposite. A man offered to help her and help her to get her where she was going. Luckily for her, she even recognized the man and knew that he was one of her father's friends. He told her that he knew where she was going and that it would only take him about five minutes to get her there. Instead of getting her to her case management meeting, though, the man was up to something much more sinister. He told Michelle that he was going to first swing by his home to pick up his daughter, and he also said that he had puppies that he knew that Michelle would love to see. The problem was, though, that his daughter did not live with him, and there were no puppies. The man would tell Michelle that she was not going to be leaving for a long time, and then he started to undress himself. Michelle started to plead with the man and told him that she needed to regain custody of her son. She showed the man a photo of her son, the only one that she had, and he took the picture, ripped it up, and told her that she was never going to see her son again. In the very beginning, Michelle was kept tied up with an extension cord wrapped around her legs, arms, and neck, and he even would shove socks into her mouth so that she could not scream. She would be raped multiple times a day, and he would always play loud music to further mute her screams and cries for help. Even though the man had a captive, though, he was not satisfied, nor was he finished, so he would strike again. Amanda Berry was born on April 22nd of 1986, and she also grew up in the Cleveland area. She had a good home life, and she was a self-sufficient young woman. She had even taken a job working at Burger King. One day before her 17th birthday, she recalls that she nearly called in sick to work for her shift because her birthday was the next day, and she had no desire to go to work. Now, with the hindsight, she assumes that her entire life would have likely been vastly different if she'd called in sick that day. While Amanda was walking home from work, a vehicle approached her and started to follow her down the street. The man inside would ask her if she wanted a ride home. When Amanda turned to see the man, she realized that she knew him. It was the father of one of her best friends from middle school. He would tell her that her friend was at his place, visiting, and asked her if she wanted to go see her. Amanda would tell the man that she did want to see her old friend, and she got inside the vehicle. When the man and Amanda entered his two-story house on Seymour Avenue, he would tell Amanda that perhaps his daughter was taking a bath, and that is why she had not met them when they arrived. He told Amanda that they would just have to wait, and offered to give her a tour of the house while they waited. He would eventually take Amanda downstairs, and she remembers that he stopped and showed her something that she knew was very strange. He showed her a woman that was sleeping in a bedroom in front of a TV. He would then take Amanda to the next bedroom, and it was a large room with a side room attached, like a small closet. She said that once inside, he told her to take her pants off. The man would then tape her wrists and ankles, and he also used a belt over the tape to ensure that Amanda would not run away. He then put a helmet on her head and told her that if she kept quiet, he would take her home. He then chained Amanda to a pole and left her alone with just the television, much like the other woman. She was forced to watch the news and she saw her family and the way that they were appealing for her return and the way that they were fighting and it made her realize that she too needed to fight. She too needed to fight hard so that she would again see her family. A week after Amanda had gone missing, the man actually would taunt the family by calling them using Amanda's cell phone. He called and told them that he had Mandy, and that she wanted to be with him. That was the only call that was ever made from Amanda's cell phone, and early tracking technology had told police a 30 to 40 block radius where the call had come from, but they were not able to close in any further, even though they worked and watched the area closely. Before that call, authorities were essentially treating Amanda's disappearance as a runaway situation, even though her family was adamant that Amanda was not the type of person to be a runaway. Unfortunately, even having now two young women held captive in his house, this man was not finished. Georgina or Gina de Jesus was born on February 13, 1990 and she would go missing on April 2nd of 2004 at the age of 14. On that day, Gina was seen at a payphone where she was with her friend Arlene, who was the daughter of the man who had now kidnapped Amanda and Michelle and was holding them captive. The two girls were calling Arlene's mother to see if Gina could come over for a sleepover. The girls were told that they could not have a sleepover that night, and the girls would part ways. Arlene would wind up being the last person that had seen Gina before she disappeared. Gina would start to walk home, but then the man would again pull up beside her in his vehicle, and she would recognize him as Arlene's father and a friend of her own father. He asked her if she had seen Arlene. When she told him that Arlene was just around the corner, the man asked Gina if she would help him find her. She, of course, obliged. Instead of looking for Arlene, however, he drove Gina to his house and he would ask her if she would help him move a stereo. He would touch Gina and she would admonish him, telling him that he could go to jail. He then took her down to the basement where he would chain her up as well. She would escape and fight back, but ultimately he would overcome her and she would become his third captive. Now, I suppose we have reached the part of the show where we need to discuss the man, Ariel Castro. Ariel Castro was born in Duyaco, Puerto Rico, and was the son of Pedro Castro and Lillian Rodriguez. When he was a child, his parents would go through a divorce, and that would leave Ariel moving to the mainland United States with his mother and his three biological siblings. The family would move first to Pennsylvania, and then settle in Cleveland, Ohio. This was because Ariel's father and other family members were living in and around the Cleveland area. Ariel would wind up having nine siblings, including his biological and half-siblings. In the 1980s, Ariel would meet Grimilda Federa in the 1980s and they would eventually leave the neighborhood that their families lived in and move in together. The families of both would say after the two moved out on their own, things changed quickly in their relationship. It's been claimed that Ariel beat Grimilda at times, breaking her nose, her ribs, her arms, and even causing a blood clot in her brain that became a tumor. Ariel would be arrested in 1993 for domestic violence, but he was not found guilty. In 1996, Grimilda would move out of the house with her four children, and the police assisted with that, detaining Ariel while she moved, but the abuse sadly did not end there. Over the years, even after they had separated, Ariel would continuously beat her, and he even was charged in 2005 of abuse and of frequently abducting their daughters from her care. At the time of the kidnappings, Ariel was working as a bus driver for the Cleveland Metropolitan School District. For the next decade, Ariel would make these three young women's lives a nightmare. He tortured them, he raped them, he boarded the house up so that they could not see outside or escape, and he even impregnated at least two of them. Michelle would say she became pregnant no less than five times while she was being held captive, and she said that every time that she would become pregnant, Ariel would beat her until her pregnancy was terminated. Beyond the sexual abuse, Ariel would also torture the three women by pretending that he was going to leave the house and actually only going outside, only to come back in minutes later to ensure that the women were not trying to escape or hatching a plan. All of that was done with the promise that if any of them tried to escape, he would kill them. All this time, at times, the women were kept separated from one another, and at other times they were allowed to be around one another, and their lives were simply to please Ariel. He would abuse them in all of the aforementioned ways and then have them be subservient in his home, doing chores exactly as he asked. During the time that the women were in captivity, the families, especially Amanda Berry's family, fought as hard as they could to keep the stories out in the media and out in the eye of the public. They were clinging to hope that they would again be reunited with their daughter. Little did all of these families know, though, that their daughters were all living the same horror story with Castro. The only way that the women knew anything that was going on in the outside world was through their television sets. Amanda recalls wishing that her mom would go on the Montel Williams show to speak with renowned psychic Sylvia Brown, so that Sylvia could reassure her mom and tell her that she was alive. In 2004, that scenario almost played out, except for the comforting part at the end. Sylvia would tell Amanda's mom that she regretted to inform her that Amanda was no longer alive. Unfortunately, three years after Amanda was taken, her mom would pass away from heart failure, never knowing what had truly happened to her daughter and not being alive when the miracle that we're going to get to shortly took place. On Amanda's 20th birthday, she also made another realization. She discovered that she was pregnant. She would give birth to her daughter Jocelyn on Christmas Day in 2006. This was, of course, devastating to Amanda, as she knew very well that Ariel was the father of her child now. Jocelyn would serve to be a bit of a distraction for the women who were held captive, having the young girl to play with and perhaps she would even change Castro a bit, as the women say that he treated her differently and would even take her out of the house. Everything for Michelle, Amanda, and Gina, though, would finally change after almost 11 years, 10 years, and 9 years of being held captive, respectively. On May 6th, Jocelyn came downstairs and told the women that she didn't see her daddy. Of course, meaning Castro. She told them that Castro was nowhere to be found. Amanda knew in that moment that she was facing a life or death, probably once in a lifetime, decision. She knew that if she was ever going to escape and ever going to take the chance, this was the time. This was the first time that her bedroom door was ever unlocked when Castro was not at the house. The front door to the basement was open, but did have alarms built in, and the storm door was padlocked shut, but Amanda was able to squeeze an arm out through that door. She did not try to break down the door because she feared that perhaps this was another one of Castro's tests, and that he was in fact not gone. Instead, Amanda started screaming. One of the neighbors, Angel Cordero, heard the screaming, but he could not communicate with Amanda because he did not know conversational English. However, another neighbor, Charles Ramsey, would hear the commotion. The men would kick a hole through the bottom of the storm door, and Amanda crawled through that hole with her daughter Jocelyn. Michelle and Gina were not with Amanda as they feared that Castro was going to kill her and they did not want to die. Amanda told the neighbors that she and her child had, had been kept inside of the home against their will. The 911 call is breathtaking to listen to today. She said, quote, Help me. I've been kidnapped and I've been missing for 10 years and I'm here. I'm free now, unquote. Responding officers would arrive and enter the home. They entered with guns drawn and they announced that CDP was on the scene. First, Michelle poked her head out from behind a bedroom door and she leaped directly into an officer's arms and immediately broke down, telling him that he had saved her. She was followed close behind by Gina from out of the other bedroom. On the very day that the women and Jocelyn escaped that house, Castro was arrested, and he would be charged with four counts of kidnapping and three counts of rape two days later on May 8th of 2013. Castro would make his first court appearance on May 9th, and bail was set at $8 million, $2 million for each charge for kidnapping. Prosecutors decided that they wanted to pursue the death penalty in this case, And he was also charged with aggravated murder for the intentional miscarriages that he caused. Attempted murder, assault, a charge for each known instance of rape that occurred, and a kidnapping charge for each day that each woman was held against her will. And of course, the legal system went to work with all of the delays that you can imagine. On May 14th, Castro's lawyers would say that if he was in fact indicted on the kidnapping and rape charges, he was going to plead not guilty to every single charge that was levied against him. This, of course, to try and scare them into charging him with lesser crimes or face the threat of years upon years upon years of paperwork and money wasted to get what they wanted. The defense did not want the death penalty. In the end, Ariel was indicted by a grand jury on 329 counts, including two counts of aggravated assault for two of the miscarriages that he caused. On June twelfth, the plea of not guilty was entered, and Craig Weintraub, one of Ariel's attorneys, stated that some of the charges against him were indisputable, and that they hoped to work towards a resolution that would avoid a long trial, and they what they wanted was to avoid the death penalty. The three hundred and twenty nine counts only covered the time period of august two thousand two to february two thousand seven. He noted that they understood the pain and the torment that was that such a case would cause for Michelle, Amanda, and Gina. Clearly all of that to be games to cause different charges. On July 3rd, Castro was found to be competent to stand trial. On July 12th, a grand jury would cover the rest of the time that the women were held against their wills, everything after February of 2007. The total was 977 counts brought against Castro, 512 counts of kidnapping, 446 counts of rape, 7 counts of gross sexual imposition, 6 counts of felonious assault, 3 counts of child endangerment, 2 counts of aggravated murder, and 1 count of possession of criminal tools. On July 17th, Ariel would plead not guilty to all 977 counts against him, He was told that he faced death by lethal injection if he was convicted on all of the charges on july 26th castro would have an about face and he would plead guilty to 937 of the charges against him including the serious ones as a plea as part of a plea deal the deal would see him avoid the death penalty and instead he would face consecutive sentences of life in prison followed by 1,000 years in prison without parole. What Castro had to give up to avoid the death penalty was immense. He could not appeal anything. He could not make one cent of profit off of his story. He forfeited everything that he owned. The judge would even go on record to to make sure that Ariel understood that there was zero chance that he would ever get out of prison if he agreed to the plea deal. Castro stated that he understood. On August 1st, all of the aforementioned was locked in at his sentencing hearing. Ariel also got a chance to talk. He would blame his lifelong addiction to pornography for his crimes. He would say that he was not a monster, but that he was actually a good person. He said that his fatal flaw was that he was addicted to sex and to gratification. He did say that he had never beaten or tortured the women, which was categorically untrue, and he also said that most of the sex that he had with the three women was consensual. In his 20-minute address to the court, he essentially pointed the blame at three things. His sex addiction, the FBI for not catching him, and most disgustingly, all three of his victims, who he blamed for getting into the car with him in the beginning. One of his final statements was that he hoped that each of the three women could find it in their hearts to forgive him, because he said that there was a lot of harmony within the home between himself, Michelle, Amanda, Gina, and Jocelyn. This man is the embodiment of what we here at GBNF call an asshat. I cannot imagine both blaming the victims and also seemingly expecting that they would one day forgive him because he somehow thought that they lived in harmony. Nut job. That's all I have to say. Less than a week later, on August 7th of 2003, as a part of the plea deal, Castro's home was demolished. Mercifully getting rid of the place that he did unreparable damage to three young women and a young girl who can never get those years of their lives back. I am, however, happy to announce that this ass hat does not breathe in the air that you and I breathe in every day. One month into his sentence, on september third of twenty thirteen, he was found hanging from a bed sheet in his cell. He didn't even make it to prison. Prison staff would perform CPR on him, and he would later be pronounced dead at the Ohio State University Wexner Medical Center. This monster, as he seemed to not want to be known, was a narcissist, an asshat, and a giant coward, if you ask me. He somehow normalized in his own mind what he did with each and every one of these women— He believed that he was creating some kind of happy family in his home while keeping these women malnourished, abused, and broken down for ten years. For ten years! And then, as his own well-deserved life sentence was literally just starting, he killed himself. This is a story of a scared and sad little monster and three, actually four, young strong and persevering women thank god that these four women all got their lives back and i for one am thankful that the monster himself does not live this life any longer i hope that the small cell that he occupies in hell serves as a reminder of what he did to innocent victims while he was here on this earth and to end all of this on a happy happier note Let this case serve as a reminder that if you are out there and still holding out hope that your missing loved one may be alive, it does happen. Don't get me wrong, what these women endured is lifetimes of misery, and yet they were able to reunite with some of their loved ones even seemingly long after most of the world had given up any hope. Never give up hope. And that's where we'll end it for today's episode. Please jump onto social media or Patreon and sign up and join the discussion of all things true crime. I love to interact with each and every one of you. And don't forget to come back next week for another episode of Gone But Never Forgotten. Be better, everyone.